vengeance. I am the knight. I am Matt Lasowitz. And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what is going on tonight, my friend? Matt, we've been doing this for 763 episodes now. And so I want to take a moment to just kind of reflect. I, I want to go all the way back to the beginning with one an old bit and two looking at our rules and thinking about how we might change them first rule is that this is uh a league of shadows podcast Uh, i stand firmly why that it is rachel ghoul it sounds better than razal ghoul one way or the other it does it's we, we feel like members of a special club second and this is this one's on me this is part where i have failed but i will endeavor to do better I'm going to try to work in the word butthole in every episode. And I have fallen down on the job. I, I think I've only done about 658 uh, episodes where I've said the word butthole. That will get better. But here's the, here's the thing that I, I think should be up for maybe some discussion tonight. Batman only has to make an appearance. And we have deviated from this a bit. And so I wonder, an addendum, an amendment... Batman or Gotham. I can definitely go with that because there are going to be Robin stories, Nightwing stories, Catwoman stories that don't actually have Batman, but are quality stories that we should discuss. And I feel like Gotham is as central to the Bat mythos as Batman himself. And let's be honest, Gotham chat does not roll off the tongue. It does not. No. And if I'm going to be doubly honest, I just want an excuse to read more Gotham Central. Yes. Oh, we will have much to discuss tonight. Ah, it's a good night, Matty it Boy. It's a night. very good night. And we will, we will get to that particularly because we're building. We're building towards that one. I intentionally made sure that one was at the end because, okay, everyone, here's a little map diversion. For for those of you who don't know, I suffer from a brand of obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm not one of those people who has to constantly wash their hands. People say, you know, you have OCD and they assume that you're just constantly washing your hands. That's not OCD. OCD is about patterns. OCD Mm. is about habit. At least the, the... the compulsion part, the obsession part is, is ruminating thoughts, but this is about compulsion. I have read my comics in the same pattern since Batman 500. That's a long time ago, Matt. That was just about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, excuse me, 30 years ago. With the exception of books that I need to read to review, which is the thing that gets any comic a dispensation from this particular rule. I take my comics, I bag them, I board them, I enter them into a what is now a large series of college-ruled bound notebooks. I write down everything in the day that I got it, and then I organize the stack with the comic I want to read the most on the bottom and working my way up to the comic I want to read the least. Not a comic I necessarily don't want to read, because why would I buy comics I don't want to read? 
but you know, there are some books that go through creative struggles or such, and they move to the top or, you know, a number one that is like, this seems interesting, but I don't know if it's going to be that great. So I'll, you know, give it a shot at the beginning of the stack and see. What this means is the way I usually try to load these episodes is in a similar way. I like to build towards the best story, unless it's a Patreon request where I try to start with the story that the patron requested. But that's a little view into the insanity of my mind. Fun, isn't it? It works quite well. Yes. I also have a, had a bad habit for many years when I had a car that didn't have the... Uh, that sound when you don't turn the headlights uh, off when you get out of the car to check the headlights on my car four times a night just to make sure that I turned them off after once being stranded in a parking lot in the middle of a blizzard because I'd forgotten to turn the headlights off on my car that morning. Yeah. So powerful drug. OCD, powerful drug. But now on to tonight's episode. So this theme originally came up when it looked like the upcoming Batman the Caped Crusader animated series was dead in the water. Now it looks like it's being shopped around and hopefully somewhere we'll pick it up since HBO Max has dropped the ball on, you know, pretty much everything. Except for another run of audio adventures, which yes. still blows my fucking mind. Yes, I will absolutely give them that because I am thrilled. Trailer for that dropped today as we are recording and can't wait. But when I heard that the possibility of that show not happening came up, I wanted to do an episode starring, featuring the head of the writer's room for that book. One of my favorite writers in comics from the past 20 years and a notable figure in Bat Cannon, Ed Brubaker. So tonight we are dealing with three Ed Brubaker stories from three different runs of Brubaker, bat-related runs. We've covered a little bit of Brubaker before with some of his Catwoman and some of the more readable chapters of War Games. But uh, this week we're going full Brubaker with three, three different stories. Uh, the first is actually his first Batman story, Fearless. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 582 to 583. The writer is Ed Brubaker. The pencils are by Scott McDaniel, inks by Carl Story. Colors by Roberta Tuis and Wildstorm FX. Letters by John Costanza and edited by Bob Shrek and Frank Berrios. The cover date is October to November of the year 2000. Jeremy Samuels, an old friend of Bruce Wayne and ally of Batman, is released from prison. And Batman wants to believe he has reformed. But Samuels is haunted and still has a death wish, leading him on a collision course with the Dark Knight. So, as I said, this is Brubaker's first main Batman story, his first run on Batman. I had thought he had actually written some Batman before that. I thought Gotham Noir predated this, but it doesn't. This is actually his first run, on, his first issue of Batman. I assume he got the gig thanks to some of the work he's been doing at Vertigo, uh, specifically a miniseries with Michael Lark, who we'll come back to later tonight, called Scene of the Crime. But Brubaker came in as a relative unknown here. He'd done a little Vertigo, some creator-owned stuff, and a little bit for Dark Horse. And that was about it. Uh, the uh, Tom King of his day, as it were. Although yeah. Tom King had more critical success. True. There are some pluses and some minuses to this story. To start out with, 
I like Scott McDaniel as an artist in general, but I don't feel like his style, his really kinetic, really wild, energetic style works with Brubaker's story specifically. Yeah, and uh, for whatever reason, I thought the second issue did a better job on this than the first. There's like a there's just a slight difference, and and I. I dislike the second better when it, uh, or dislike the second less when it comes to this art, but the inks, man, are just, it's too much. Uh, they're too thick. It's too dark. It's too messy. There's one specific like action scene where Batman is basically all over the page. It feels messy. It feels sloppy. None of this feels like a very serious artistic, I don't know, kind of expression. The, it, the tone definitely feels out of place here as compared to the uh, kind of the substance of the story. And this is McDaniel. This was his promotion. He'd been drawing Nightwing for a number of years and he got bumped up to the bigger leagues right after No Man's Land. And he was working for those first eight or nine issues out of No Man's Land with Larry Hama on scripts. We'll get to Larry Hama's Batman. Listen, Larry Hama is a legend. His G.I. Joe is supposed to be great. I'm not a big G.I. Joe guy, so I'm, I can't speak to it too much. His Wolverine varies, but is generally pretty darn good. His Batman was not. Aww. His Batman Batman was way too quippy. It was a very 66-y kind of constantly talking Batman. Mm, that doesn't work so well. And it worked, the, I mean, at least McDaniel's art fit that tone better mm, i could see that yeah and mcdaniel is on for most of brubaker's run there's one notable issue that we'll eventually get to as part of bruce wayne fugitive which is an early brubaker and phillips that Ooh. that that's a good issue that's a good issue the second, I have three major quibbles with this story, which isn't, I mean, listen, is in general a decent story. This isn't a bad comic, but there are three things that jumped out at me right out of the gate that were like, yeah, this is clearly a writer finding his legs early in his career and early with a character. Uh, number two, there's a little bit of Ghostmaker syndrome with Jeremy Samuels. That sort of retconned in, oh yeah, he was Bruce Wayne's security guy and good friend. And he was Batman. He worked with Batman. And so, and we've never heard of him, even though he went through all this and has been in jail for five years. And Bruce has been holding out for hope that he'll come out and get his life back. I mean, I understand that, you know, there are going to be stories that we didn't hear about because we don't follow Batman everywhere. But a character who is presented with this much import to Bruce, it feels kind of forced. Not as forced as Ghostmaker, but still kind of like, oh, that's right out of left field. Yeah, there are moments where Samuels definitely feels too familiar with Mr. Wayne. You know, he, he calls him Bruce. I, I, I think in that workplace setting, he should definitely have addressed him as, you know, Mr. Wayne. They could have been professionals. He could have had a fondness for him, but let's not pretend that they were close friends. See, that's one of the things I have to go back and I have to read more or remember better 
more scenes of Bruce with Wayne employees. I know there have been times where he's said to Wayne employees, call me Bruce. But I think we needed more of them together as friends or see them spend time together off the clock to establish why there was this connection. And it's all too convenient for that one flashback to be, oh, I remember him that one time telling me he'd just go crazy if he lost his family. Come on. That's pretty, uh, you know, right on the nose. And and also for for a guy to say, oh, I did my research and I, I saw that your parents had been brutally murdered. Come on. This is a thing that everybody in that world knows. There have been biopics about the Waynes, unauthorized biopics, unauthorized biographies. There was a whole joke about that on the new season of Harley Quinn, but I absolutely believe that there is the the Thomas Wayne unauthorized biography and not just the one from Cold Case, that one story we did. But this is such common knowledge. This is the Lindbergh baby. Everybody knows this happened. Who's going to be the first person to write a story about Bruce getting pissed off at a true crime podcast covering his parents. There's actually, there's potential there because the investigation could start getting a little too close to the secret. Let's, uh, let's call up somebody. Let's pitch it. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I not Tom King. Oh, oh shit. This is what we do, Matt. This is now, Season three of Audio Adventures. Oh yeah, I could a podcast about a podcast, man. Yes, absolutely. That that works. I'm all for that. <laughs> quibble number three. Before we will discuss the the, the plus sides here, uh, quibble number three is our big bad Zeiss, who doesn't get a name until the last page of the book. Zeiss is a poor man's Prometheus. They have the same basic power set. Prometheus, created by Grant Morrison, is a guy who has this helmet that lets him download the moves of all the greatest fighters in the DC universe. He is also expressly an anti-bad. He's a guy whose parents were criminals, who were shot by the law, and now is a supervillain. Zeiss is a guy who has crazy goggles that let him download the moves of every person he sees fight and thus can counter their moves. Now, granted, Zeiss being a poor man's Prometheus is saying something because Prometheus is a poor man's pretty much everything. He was created by Morrison to be a great character. And even they undercut this by him being taken out in his first appearance by a nut shot from Catwoman with her whip. Ouch! Yeah, oh yeah, it hurt. And by in his second appearance by Batman uploading Stephen Hawking's condition into the helmet. I could see how that would fuck that guy up. Yeah, a little bit. But he was never this big threat that he was made out to be. And Zeiss is just a lesser version of that character. Let me get this down in my brain, at least. So what was, what was your first quibble? My first quibble was the art. Ah, okay, good, good. Because you expressly said number two is and then three. And okay, wanted to get you on the record. Number one is the mismatch of art to story. Yep. I think McDaniel is a fine artist. He draws a great Nightwing story because of how kinetic his art is. And he could draw a great 
Batman. He drew a great Daredevil for the same reason. Daredevil is a character who's, he's an acrobat. He's constantly in motion. But for this story, especially with both the, the heavy inks and some of the coloring, it didn't feel suited to this story. No. And that happens sometimes. Yeah. But the general beats of the story are solid. Batman is invested in someone who was recently paroled. Batman wants to help them. They don't want to be helped. They throw in with some criminals and shit goes bad from there. The core of that story is a good story. And part of this, I think, is the real strength of Brubaker. And it's a through line through all of these stories this is a very grounded story. Even when we get to our last story and, you know, we've seen spoiler alert Joker, you know, we've seen these bad guys just taken to such giant extremes. That last story is very simple. It's very basic. And we, we have this here. We have a guy whose life has been destroyed and Batman trying desperately to save him. And it goes wrong. It goes wrong in the most tragic, horrific ways. And I really like that through all of these stories tonight. Like Brubaker is, I mean, it's a reason why criminal and killer be killed and basically everything else he's ever done has been so fantastic. Like they are real relatable stories. The fade out remains my favorite of the Brubaker Phillips collabs. I just wanted to drop it because it's a story of the Hollywood blacklist, which is a period of history that I find fascinating. That's you motherfuckers. Yep. Name names, you bastards. Also, Facing the Crowd, still an excellent film. Try not to hold the director against his naming and names. That's the problem because, I mean, Streetcar is brilliant. On the Waterfront is brilliant. Kazan was a brilliant artist. He was just a scumbag who named names. Have you seen Face in the Crowd? Oh, yeah. We talked about this once before on here. Yes, I know. I know. I, I Look, I will take any opportunity to talk about that movie. It's so fucking good. Look, look. All right. If you're listening to this right now, I want you to stop whatever you're doing. Like, stop your car. Stop your, you know, you're out on your walk. Whatever you're doing, just sit your ass down and watch Face in the Crowd. Watch Andy Griffith terrify the shit out of you as a manipulative media scumbag like it's so perfect and it's just, it's like his first acting role and it's just this raw terrifying energy like you will never look at andy griffith or matt Locke again in the same way it's such a perfect movie but kazan was a son of a bitch oh yeah no argument there anyway back to comics yeah for all of my other issues with the character the moment at the end where Zeiss's goggles come off and he's like clockwork oranged himself. Oh, that was a great moment. Oh yeah. That is a freaky visual and I like it a lot. Yeah. Dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And we will get more Zeiss as we get more Brubaker. Zeiss is a character. He comes, we saw him in war games. Actually. He was one of the bodyguards at the meeting at the beginning of war games who makes it out alive and fights Selena. He fights Selena earlier in her run. He comes back in this Batman run as the bodyguard of another character who we'll see 
just he was never a villain that was particularly impressive to me. Another through line through all of these stories, they're all mysteries in one fashion or another, or have a mystery element. And Brubaker knows how to play a mystery. Here you finally, you watch Bruce make the connections he needs to, to figure out where Jeremy Samuels is making his final stand. And it's like, oh yeah, see, that's, that's Batman thinking. That's Batman coming to a logical conclusion from the evidence presented. And I also like the way Rebecca writes Penguin. This is the mobster Penguin. I'm glad that McDaniel doesn't give him flippers or anything. He draws him in a very traditional Penguin look, and it works with Brubaker's world. There was an event month called This Month, or This Issue, Batman Dies, where each issue of the Bat titles that month, save one, was a villain thinking about how they would kill Batman. And Brubaker's is a Penguin story. Brubaker has a soft spot for Penguin, I feel. And I would love to see him come back. I'd love to see how he's going to be handled on Cape Crusader. That would be fun. And I think we got a very good depiction of uh, Penguin and the Batman. He, he should be a serious threat, but if you corner him, he should probably fold. He's used to being able to manipulate his way out of a situation. He's he's not a fighter. No, he's a lover. Yeah, but he's got information and he's used to being able to just back off or I'm going to share these pictures of you cheating on your wife. What? Let's make a deal. Yes, that was great in audio adventure, the way he manipulated things to get Harvey on his side. I love the bit where Zeiss is beating up all these martial artists. You know, these are expensive. Penguin's always about the bottom line. And for my complaints about Samuels in context with Batman, Samuels as a character has pathos. He does. And that sort of coldness that he has because he doesn't feel anything anymore because of the death of his family is tragic you can see why bruce has such sympathy for him and if they leaned into that more than the old friendship i think i would have felt better about this story i i wonder if almost you have to take this story and instead of two issues give it three and tell it in a more linear fashion you devote a whole issue about Bruce bringing on Samuels for the first time. You see him being great at his job. Then at some point in that first issue, you see this tragedy. You see him fall. You see him turn to crime. End of the first issue, he goes to jail. Beginning of the second, he gets out and then begins his second fall, his second fall into depression and you know, basically being unable to be saved. I think that would have helped the story a little more context, a little more feel for why Bruce cared. And I do like one line where Bruce thinks about how his life would have been different if his parents had been killed when he was an adult. I'm not always in love with a story where Batman is the narrator, but Brubaker handles that pretty well in both this and the next story. Do you have anything else on this one? I don't think so. 
So that means it's time to put fearless on the big board. We currently have 162 stories on the big board. God damn. Yep. Story number one remains Batman year one from Batman volume one numbers 404 to 407 down at number 30 is blink from legends of the dark knight numbers 156 to 158 down at 60 is nightmares the batman the long halloween special coming in at 69 the very worst one of these stories to be at 69 batman the killing joke that's not nice down at number 90 is the brotherhood of the fist crossover at 120 is a death in the family from Batman Volume 1, numbers 426 to 429. 150 is Gotham by Gaslight. And bringing up the rear is still, still Batman White Knights. Boo. Okay. I think while this is the least of the three stories tonight, this is yeah. still a really good story. Yeah. Um, it's, it's top half. It's, that's exactly what I was thinking. But probably in that, you know, 70s area, it's not as strong as the untold legend of the Batman, which, while it doesn't insert anything into Batman's backstory, it sort of streamlines all of that pre-crisis Batman stuff into that one story. And frankly, the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd, which inserts all sorts of stuff is much more organic than this. And we just did mention the killing joke. It is for all of its ills, a seminal text. This is, it's good, but I think ultimately forgettable. Yes. And killing joke, as with this, the devil is in the details. The core of this and the core of the killing joke are both very good. The problem with, killing joke is that all the stuff around that you know one bad day joker trying to break jim gordon all the problems are with the details not with the concept and the art is not so off as to drop it into bad territory which is what we basically have at 95 with injustice and 97 with i am batman The art here is not bad. It just, as we've said, doesn't work for this story. So it's got to be above Injustice at 95. And I think, as you said, uh, below Untold Legend of the Batman at 70. So that range in there, and I think you're right. It's more toward the top than toward that bottom. Yeah. Okay. 81, the first Batman, the story of Thomas Wayne in the, the Masquerade and Lou Moxon. That's another retcon. That's another big retcon. How does this stand up to that? I actually think the first Batman is probably a little stronger just in that that has more more emotional resonance for Bruce, you know, dealing with this bit of the past with his father. And I mean, it's a golden age story. So the art is golden age art, but it fits the golden age story. Very true. Um, I think it's better than Batgirl Day One, the first appearance of Harley Quinn in the comics at 84. 
Yes. And remind me Superman 76 That's at 82. Uh, first meeting of Batman and Superman. They're on the boat. The guy with the diamonds in the uh, gun. That was, that was a delightful little trifle. Yes. So I think this is either going to be the new 83 or the new 84. So we've got, we're in, so the only story in between Mightiest Team in the World, that's Superman and Batgirl Day One, is Batman Year 100. Batman Year 100 is big and wild. It's another, you know, crazy book, but it is a little more all over the place. This story, for its, my problems with the retcons and such, it gets in, it gets out, and it tells its story in two issues. And sets up it sets up things for the future, but it tells its story in two issues without it being well. There's all this wasted potential, which is kind of what I felt with all of the details in Batman Year One Hundred that would have made for really interesting stuff that was just kind of there that Paul Pope could have spent more time flushing out some of the stuff and not inserting all of this extraneous stuff. I think you've convinced me this is the new number 83. All right. Our next story is Made of Wood. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 784 to 786. The writer is Ed Brubaker, with pencils by Patrick Zercher, uh, inks by Aaron Saud, colors by Jason Wright and Wildstorm FX, letters by Todd Klein, edited by Bob Shrek and Michael Wright. The cover dates are September to November of 2003. A retired Jim Gordon finds a dead body beneath the statue of the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, with the words made of wood carved into it, mimicking murders from the 1940s. The murder draws in both Batman and the original Green Lantern, and as their parallel investigations grow closer to the killer, Gordon finds himself in a dangerous situation. So, let's start first. Tell me everything you know about Alan Scott. Alan Scott is the Golden Age Green Lantern. While I'm not 100% sure when it was retconned that he was Gotham's hero of the 40s, I believe that was post-crisis. He became the original sort of modern superhero of Gotham. He was a, a media mogul, a radio, I believe, back in the 30s. And eventually it became television and newspapers and things. Uh, he is one of the Justice Society of America. He is also currently going through a really interesting plot development where he is a man in his later years who is coming to terms with the fact that he's gay. And for years had a wife and did everything he felt like he should and recently decided to come out and so it's a story that we don't often see in comics people of their in their later years come i mean it's not a story we see in media a lot one question i had in this and maybe is this a fact a feature of all the lanterns or just alan scott is he ageless slash immortal that is specific to certain members of the justice society they were ah. exposed to a magical element that made them age at an incredibly slow rate. And it's not every member of the Justice Society, but Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, the original Flash, 
Ted Grant, Wildcat, all of them still maintain a certain degree of agelessness. Alan also has the mystical benefit of the Starheart. He's not a you know member of the Green Lantern Corps. His Green Lantern powers come from a magical element. But that's that's why he still looks looks like a man in his 50s versus a man pushing, you know, 90 at that point. So this is the central part of this story. And maybe you can explain this to me. Where does his central weakness come from? Like who who at what point had the idea? Oh, let's make this guy vulnerable to wood. That is the golden age for you. That has been his vulnerability from the beginning, which you know, it's funny because when you think about it, when, you know, your Green Lantern Corps has the vulnerability to yellow, uh, Dixon Ticonderoga number two pencil could kill <laughs> Ivan. Uh, not the first person to make that joke, but it's a good one. And I, I stand by it. So obviously in this, in this story, uh, a bat is, uh, is what we see, but like, how how else are we defeating this lantern with wood? Like, are we using like wood gloves, a wood ring? Well, you got to remember, Grundy is a plant zombie. Grundy is decayed plant matter. So he's literally made of wood. That's why Grundy is such a threat because Grundy is a, a plant monster. He is uh, So Gr- Grundy and uh, the uh, sports master. <laughs> yes. Oh, sports master. Yeah, Alan Scott... I mean, Grundy was his sort of main nemesis that still shows up. I mean, other than members of the Injustice Society, the the JSA's sort of opposite numbers, guys like Icicle and Tigress and the Gambler and the Shade. But a lot of them more fought Jay Garrick. I'm aside from Grundy and sports Grundy. I mean, I not thinking of a ton of Alan Scott nemeses. But yeah, this brings Alan Scott back to Gotham. And it is a thing where, as opposed to a lot of the other cities of the DC universe, Gotham had vigilantes on and off pretty regularly from the 40s till when Batman showed up. There was the Acrobat and there was the Reaper, both characters that we will get to in other stories, or at least we'll definitely get to the Reaper. I'm trying to remember if Acrobat actually ever shows up in any Batman stories or not. He was a a character from Chase and some Martian Manhunter stories. I wonder to what extent 5G would have streamlined and incorporated some of this stuff and maybe rewritten some of this stuff. Yeah, I would love to hear what some of those 5G plans are. And after friend of the show and my co-host on my other podcast and my best friend of 30 years, Dan Grote and I sat in on a Dan Didio panel at Wizard World Philly or Fan Expo Philly now this this past spring. Yeah, I have little doubt that if you ask Didio at the right moment, he will tell you everything because he pulled no punches. I think if they could have pulled it off, I would have liked to have seen multiple books coming out at the same time set in different eras like a 4G Batman and a 5G Batman, just a a Batman and Robin where it's Batman and Dick Grayson and then a Nightwing book. Like if you're telling stories at the same time in different eras, I think you can do more things. And I don't know if that was their idea. I don't know if that was the purpose, 
but that was something at least you could have done. It's one of the joys of Mark Wade's current run on world's finest that's set in the past. And we're getting fun, you know, younger Batman, younger Superman and Dick Grayson is Robin's stories. But this story, this is a serial killer story. This is a mystery. This is really watching Batman work a case and watching Jim Gordon work a case. Alan Scott himself says at the beginning of this, I'm not a detective. So Batman has someone to talk to about how the detective stuff works. It makes sense to have a non-detective there with him. So he's not explaining to Nightwing why he's doing this, because guess what? Nightwing, he knows. Tim Drake, he knows. And Jim, Jim would know. It's a bad night for Gotham mayors. Oh, is it ever? Oh, is it ever? Yeah, with uh, Mayor Thorndike being beaten to death with a bat and then carved up. Not a good time. Mm-mm. This, for those out there who haven't read any of or much of this era, this is the period where Jim Gordon had been shot and had retired and Michael Aikens was commissioner of police. So Jim is currently retired. He won't come back as commissioner until one year later and post-Infinite Crisis. But for now, Jim is a private citizen with really rotten luck when it comes to finding corpses. (laughs) Ah, you can't throw a dead cat in Gotham without hitting a dead body. (laughs) That is ever so true. The art here, and again, we're... I set this up both chronologically and and in descending order of how great it is. Zercher's art definitely fits Brubaker's story better than McDaniel's, but not as good as the artist on our final story. Zercher's got a nice, not quite gritty style, but a very grounded style. But he's also able to pull off some of the big wild Green Lantern stuff. There's a great moment where Bruce is roughing up a mob lawyer in disguise, not as Batman. And the guy at the end is like, you know, kind of a, who are you? And Alan gets a, creates a bat construct behind him. And it looks freaking awesome. Now, there were some odd story beats in this. You know, you talking about beating the guy up in, uh, in costume. Where he tries to infiltrate, I guess, the homeless camp. And, you know, he's got his uh, his scruffy beard on, but then he's got the bat costume on right under that. That seems a little dangerous. Yeah. Because, again, you're Bruce fucking Wayne. Even the hobos are going to know who you are. True. He's a master of disguise. Alfred has trained him. And, and think about... If you're not expecting Bruce Wayne, if he's got, you know, a fake beard and some dirt, this is not the place you'd expect that person. I have run into people who I know out of context and it can throw you. If I see a coworker of mine at the sex shop, I'm still going to know it's a coworker, Matt. Okay. I, I, will, <laughs> I, I will give you that. Just kidding, folks. I order all that stuff online. I can me I, I, I can see where you're coming from on that one. But 
I think generally the beats in this are really, really good. Uh, this, the made of wood killer, there's a logical, or as logical as any homicidal maniac's reason for why he's killing. And the clues work. It's not completely play fair. This isn't designed to be a play fair mystery, but you can follow the the steps. Uh, speaking of Playfair, I still can't get over how good uh, Batman's casebook was uh, from a couple of weeks ago. And I really wish like there was somebody who would take on a bat title with the idea of I'm going to write mysteries that people can try to solve and I'm going to write it with clues. And like, that's going to be the whole pull of this book. But okay. yeah, you're one, one second. Sure. There, th- this is not a Batman comic. But if you want a comic that is Playfair Mysteries, there is a series from the 80s called Maze Agency. And it's Mike Barr who wrote My Beginning and My Probable End, Doomsday Book, Fear for Sale. Every issue is a one-off Playfair mystery. And it is coming back from Scout Comics with new issues in the not-too-distant future. And I am super friggin' excited for this book. Uh, but nonetheless, back to this book, there's some great moments in here. I especially like when Bruce and Alan are looking for Gordon, who has at this point been taken by the modern made of wood killer. And Bruce describes how, you know, how detection works, that you put the clues together and you come up with a story. You imagine how it all fits together. And Alan's, what if you imagine wrong? And Bruce's gives him this look and says, I'll let you know if it ever happens. And it's just like, oh, I, I like a Batman who can occasionally be a little wry and a little full of himself because, you know, he is the world's greatest detective. I was just looking at Batman's list of possible suspects. Yes. And I, they're... I there, there are little nuggets in there, right? We get a we get a William Finger. Yep. There's Engelhart. Yep. Uh, what are, can you read them all? I, I, of course, I took a photo of it on my phone so I could reference it and left my phone in the other room. Ah, way to go! Uh, so there's Jack Schiff. Yep. Schiff was a Golden Age creator. The name we assume is going to be William Finger. Alan Brennert, writer of To Kill a Legend. Uh, what we assume to be Stephen Englehart and then uh, Frank Robbins. Another Golden Age creator. Very yeah. cute. Very they cute. Are. Yes. And See? not clubbing you over the head. Exactly. We don't have to name landmarks on every page for uh, for all of these guys. Yeah, and Brubaker and Rucka do it in the next story when we'll get to it. But there, there's a whole litany of locations and not everyone, but a couple of them are. I'm sure there's a finger in there. There's a few of them that are listed in there. They're like, oh, well, that's clever. But it's not like, hey, let me make sure everyone is something that is an Easter egg. Ah, the Paul Dini skating rink. <laughs> the Dixon Docks. Um, but yeah, I, I like the ultimate uh, conclusion of this as being basically a family vendetta. You know, guy loses his shop. Uh, unfortunately has a problem with mental illness and then his grandson takes up that same vendetta and it's logical in that 
well, mental illness can run in families. It can be hereditary. And, you know, you open grand, uh, Peepaw's steamer trunk and it can be the thing that sets you off uh, on the deep end. I do have one question that I could not figure out for the fucking life of me. When Gordon is jumped, I could not piece that together, right? So he thinks he's talking to the super of one building and he says, oh yeah, the super's in that apartment down there, which was not the apartment that was listed on the door. And he goes there and there's a note that's like, hey, come find me in the super's office. Like, I just, I didn't understand it at all. Okay, Gordon is going looking for our possible, the grandson of our possible original maid of wood killer. Francis Sullivan, grandson of Seamus Sullivan. Ah, so Irish it hurts. Yep. Gordon rings Francis Sullivan's bell, does not get an answer. Gordon then rings the bell for the super's office. Super comes out, says, oh, you're, uh, and Gordon tells him he's looking for Sullivan. The super is like, oh, he's apartment 1G. Gordon walks down to 1G with the super trailing him. And on the door is a note, can't find me here. Come to the super's office because he's the super. And before Gordon realizes it, oh shit. And then Sullivan cold cocks him with a, a pipe wrench. I still think like his name would have been on the door and that would have been the apartment that he was looking for. And I'm, I'm just going to have to let this go because I can't think about this anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of these things that it made sense to me. So I'm, I can't figure out the angle where it doesn't make sense because it <laughs> makes sense to me. This is something you see often, by the way, working in IT. When people can't figure something out, it's like, but it, it just, it, it's there. It makes sense. That's how it works. And you, I can't figure out without them showing me step-by-step step what they're doing that is wrong, why it's not working for them. Because for me, it's second nature to just do it right. Not that you're doing anything wrong, but that's sort of a similar thing. I like the use of Oracle in this story, both as useful you know, helping Batman with the case. And then as the, the daughter of the daughter of Jim Gordon, who is stressed when dad doesn't come home while he's been out, obviously investigating a murder. And then there's that nice panel where Gordon is reflecting on uh, his stabbing question mark, shooting his shooting. And, you know, he's uh yeah, he's he's walking with a cane at this point, right? Yes. And he reflects for a moment, well, it could be worse, right? And there's that that picture of of Barbara in the chair yep. uh, and, at their wedding. And next to that, the and the photo of Sarah, his deceased second wife, who gets referenced in the next story too, because that was a big thing at one point before you know the new fifty two made all of that disappear for a while grumble 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 yeah we'll we'll get much more sarah as we do more stories especially in the in no man's land and i liked the very end of this story that last moment in the bat cave where alan leaves bruce the bat as a trophy and then bruce takes out a trophy that was already in the cave a photo of young Thomas Wayne meeting Alan Scott when Thomas was probably around Bruce's age when the Waynes were killed. 
it's it's a nice moment and explains Bruce's sort of hero worship of Alan Scott. He's very much throughout the story talking about how Alan Scott is a hero. And at no point does he give him a, this is my city, which he does to pretty much anybody who comes into Gotham. Yeah, it's almost like the the gray ghost as a real hero. Yes, that is a, a great analogy for the way Bruce looks at Alan Scott in this story. And it's nice to have people for Bruce to look up to because he needs he needs some waypoints. You know, he needs some guidance. He needs somebody to keep him uh, on track. I've always felt like Ted Grant sort of serves that purpose. Wildcat, who was one of the guys who trained him and who is, you know, the gruff trainer of heroes. I look forward to us doing some more Batman and Wildcat stories. Because he trained Batman, he trained Black Canary, he trained Catwoman. We saw him in that Catwoman miniseries in Sister's Keeper. He, he was there. That we did. I have a real soft spot for Wildcat. Especially the, uh, the, the two animated versions in Justice League Unlimited. He's voiced by Dennis Farina. And in Brave and That's the Bold. That's very gruff. Yeah. And Brave and the Bold, it's Arlie Ermey. Who's that? Drill Sergeant from Full Metal Jacket. Oh, oh, wow. Why did I not place that uh, name? Yeah. He's, he's invariably a drill sergeant and things. So he, he kind of fits as Wildcat, as the trainer of heroes. This is as much a Jim Gordon story as a Batman story. And I like that, you know, Jim is working different angles. This is two parallel investigations and they're both coming at it from very different angles and i like that i like that it shows that batman and gordon while they work together well have different mindsets and it shows gordon as a competent investigator and detective in his own right uh which i think is a good point that you know the next story and the next series really drives home like these are not just people in batman's orbit these are capable, confident, uh, intelligent people who are trying to navigate this really, really fucked up world. It's one of the things that makes Tinian's Joker so brilliant. The, the way he handles Gordon as a competent investigator in that book too. One more thing that I have for this, uh, for this story. How wild are these backups? Like the, the first one is the psychic who can see where stuff goes. Josie Mack, who shows up in our next story. Weird, man. Yeah, Weird. She's, um, she, uh, a psychometric. That's the name of that, the, the technical name for that power, touch tell. And then the dog catcher, which is friggin' insane. There's some great backup. I mean, the Josie Mack, that's Judd Winnick and Cliff Chang. This run of Detective has uh, on the trail of Catwoman, the Brubaker, Cook, Slam Bradley backups that lead into Brubaker's Catwoman series during Rooka's time on Detective when they were doing the two stories. I, I, I love a good backup story. I love a good backup story. The problem is you only got a 50-50 chance usually whether the backup's going to be any good or not. Yeah, and uh, my poor brain can't remember the last thing I read, you know, last month. And so I like I invariably am disconnected uh, when I get to the good backup. That's the problem. There's a really good Gordon story right now that just finished in as some backup tech. It's the yeah, one yeah, yeah. in tech. Uh, it's uh, the creators of Arkham City. It's Spurrier. No, no uh, Waters. No, 
it's Danny who did the art and it's Spurrier on story. So it's half the team of Arkham City. It's Danny on art. It looks good as fuck. And yet I can't, I can't keep track of where it's going or where it's been. It's also putting out its clues slowly. It's set in between Gordon's return to Gotham and when he sort of makes peace with the Joker in his own head at the end of Joker which made the, when they gave that as the waypoint, I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Cause I thought it was after when he'd made peace and suddenly he was drinking all the time. It's like, but wait, he was happy at the end of Joker. Oh, this takes place before that. Okay, that makes sense. I feel much better about it now that I know it's placement in the timeline. Uh, oh, another, again, another one of the, the little nods, uh, Grant Park, named for Alan Grant. And it's a pretty ass park too. Yeah. Again, Zercher does a great job on this book. It's a really nice looking comic. Do you have anything else? I don't have anything else. So that means it's time to put made of wood on the big board. So we're above fearless. Yep. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're cracking the top 50, but we're closer to 50 than we are to 80. Um, all right. So we got Nightfall Part 2 coming in at 57. This is better. This is more streamlined. This tells a solid story. It's the art is good throughout. I think this is probably above that. I think Blood Secrets at 54 is a more satisfying conclusion. Yes. And I think my beginning and my probable end, which is the book that establishes Leslie Tompkins as the character she's been since, is more important and is more emotionally resonant for the Bruce-Leslie relationship. I'm also, and admittedly, a sucker for Leslie Tompkins. That you are. As soon as we get a Tim Drake-Leslie Tompkins book, you're just, you're just dead. You're, you're just going to die. And we'll, I'll try to carry on without you. But I know that's going to be your probable end. <laughs> so that, if we accept that, then it's again, either 56 or 57. The only story in between my beginning, my probable end and Nightfall Part 2 is It Takes Two Wings. That Batman, Green Arrow team up where Green Arrow keeps calling Batman a fascist. Uh, well, if the jackboot fits, I mean, what are you going to do, bud? I- Batman is many things, but he is, I don't know how an extra legal vigilante is a fascist. <laughs> well, look, in, in the wrong hands. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. No and doubt. stuff like Brother Eye is certainly a bit oh, fashy. There are absolutely takes on Batman that run towards fascism. And he can... He can lean that way, but the trick is that Bruce usually pulls himself back from the edge. He's, he, he knows a, better. A failsafe, as you might say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say 56 then. Yeah. Yeah. This goes in between my beginning and my probable end, and it takes two wings. Made of- Cute little run of detective comics we got there. Yes. And we have, we'll have some more Brubaker detective in the future he did not run on detective as long as he ran on batman and i don't think it was on either of them as long as he was on catwoman but he had runs on a lot of bat books including 
our final book of the night. Oh, finally. This is Soft Targets, Gotham Central, numbers 12 through 15. The writers are Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka. Pencils by Michael Lark. Inks by Lark and Stefano Godino. Colors by Lee Lawfridge. Letters by Clem Robinson. And edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. Cover dates are December of 2003 to March of 2004. A sniper has killed the mayor of Gotham, and the entire GCPD is mobilized. But as more victims start popping up, and Batman reveals that the culprit is the Joker, the questions pile up. What is his motive? Why this seemingly un-Joker-like crime? And why, at the height of his rampage, does the Joker turn himself in? Now listen, you've never read Gotham Central before, correct? I, I think I read the first arc, or I read okay. the first couple of issues. Okay, because I knew kind of going in that there are a lot of characters in this book. It's a huge ensemble, and most of them were created for this book. So part of me was a little like, I don't know if this is necessarily the story to go with. I Maybe I should have gone with something sooner. But I had to go with this one because it might not be the best arc of Gotham Central. That's probably half a life. The Montoya is outed arc. This is my favorite arc of Gotham Central because this, this is a great fucking Joker story. Oh, it's got to be one of the best. Because it, it's I, so fucking simple. It is. And the end, the end has one of my favorite joker lines of all time just his reason for doing this his twist of the knife is so fucking perfect and this story is joker as dracula this is a joker story but the joker does not appear until the last two pages of part three the joker is not in this story a ton but you feel his menace from the minute anybody figures out that the joker is involved the minute somebody figures out the joker is involved it becomes an oh shit moment and you see that as every character in this story hears that it's the joker they go pale they freeze up they don't say anything because it's like oh shit it's the fucking Joker. We get the entire cast of this book. Theoretically, this book worked in alternating arcs with Rucka writing one arc, Brubaker writing one arc, and then them doing an arc together. Rucka's arcs were the day shift, which was Montoya and Allen and Maggie Sawyer. And Brubaker did the night shift, which was... Probson and Driver and Josie Mack and various other characters. What and a cool so, fucking concept. Yeah. And so the first arc, issues one and two were both of them. Then you had, I believe, three, four, and five, which was a Brubaker arc. Then six through 10 is the Montoya Half a Life arc. 11 is a one-off, and then you get this, which is them coming together again. And, you know, for a book where 
you might not know the entire cast that well. Every one of these characters has a voice. Yeah. And by the end of this arc, even if you don't 100% know all of these characters, you have a feel for them. And you can feel for them. You feel for Driver and his romance with Detective Chandler and them trying to navigate that. Montoya and Allen, I mean, they're they're established properties. So is Maggie Sawyer. But Probson, who's pissed that Sawyer came in over him. Sarge, who's the good old lovable sergeant. Oh God, there's so many freaking characters in this book. Stacy, I love Stacy. Stacy is a great concept that legally speaking, the GCPD can't endorse a vigilante like Batman. So they have to take someone who works in the bullpen, a non-police to flip the bat signal. So legally they have cover. (laughs) Uh, It's just an anonymous concerned citizen who just does that stuff. Right. I think that's a great little bit that they added for this book. You get hints of uh, Jim Corrigan, not the Spectre, the other Jim Corrigan, who will become a major, major part of this book towards the end of CSI Jim Corrigan, who is dirty as dirty can be. And this book could easily, easily have been copaganda. But Brubaker and Rucka do not necessarily pull any punches about the fact that while none of our main cops are dirty, not all of them are great people. Lieutenant Probesom happily takes a phone book to the Joker. Gleefully takes a phone book to the Joker. I mean, some of them are just assholes. And there's a real strain of anti-media amongst the police that we see in a few instances here that I don't think was meant to be viewed as the writers endorsing that and saying, see, reporters are awful. No, it's pointing out that these cops have a problem with reporters and that's not necessarily a good thing because that's oversight. And it's interesting, the discussion here about cops and the use of overtime and whether they are just, you know, milking a system in which they very quickly push back. Oh, no, no, we, we, we need this. You know, this is, this is just how we work. It was an interesting thing to see brought up because there are some beats in here that are, you know, standard police procedural stuff. Like there's somebody complaining that they didn't refill the coffee. Uh, there's a, there's a shootout in the station house, which could have just been right from law and order. It's, it's how Stabler left SVU originally. So some of this stuff is not exactly unique, but it is certainly unique to see it in the world of costumes and tights. And as you pointed out in the earlier story, a lot of this discussion comes down to the GCPD being pawns in Batman and Joker's great game. And these guys are pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah, that even the the deputy mayor who is becoming the new mayor since Mayor Dickerson is assassinated by the Joker on page three of part one. Uh, he's like, yeah, you know, Batman's going to get involved in this and he's going to take care of it. So you just need to do something that lets me save face because whatever you guys. Go rouse the clowns. Yeah. And that's another thing where it's, it's, it's made clear that they are 
basically being put out for PR and not doing good police work, but instead just following what the mayor tells them to. And Hull is not a great mayor either. He's not as crooked as Dickerson, but Dickerson was real crooked. Again, you know, Gotham I, can't have a good mayor. That's no, the rules. No, we, we've said it before. Um, a Gotham mayor is one of three things. Corrupt, incompetent, or quickly dead. And Dickerson is two of the three. Uh, I guess we could have been that uh, to be four. Uh, corrupt, incompetent, both are quickly dead. Yes. Very, very true. But I mean, I, I we talked about it in the synopsis, but the, the basic premise here is Joker's just shooting people. He's finding a sniper's nest. He's got a rifle similar to the one Oswald used. And he is, he kills the mayor. He kills a superintendent of schools. He takes some shots at some cops. And then he sets up a countdown clock on a webcam and is just setting up when his next murder is going to be. This is the Joker fucking with people. Do you think Goyer read this in preparation for The Dark Knight? Little doubt. Little <laughs> doubt in my mind. This is very much the Joker of The Dark Knight. Up to and including the fact that I think people often forget Heath Ledger's fucking funny. Heath Ledger plays that role he's not just creepy he can be funny and they get joker's voice in that last part so good joker is just such a wise ass and such a bastard you know talking to chris allen about you know you're my new friend but okay i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about it right now because talk about it end of this story they don't know why joker has been doing this and why he suddenly turned himself in and eventually Batman figures it out first, but then a detective Romy Chandler figures it out. This is three days before Christmas. This starts, although the first part says three weeks and then it quickly corrects itself to three days. So that was good because three weeks would not have given us the, the impetus to the fact that, Hey, nobody's been out of their house for, you know, two days because the Joker has been shooting people. Like, I'm pretty sure the city shuts down in general when they know the Joker's out there. When he's unpredictably shooting people, even more. But now the streets are flooded and the stores are flooded with people who need to do last minute Christmas shopping. And the Joker has the webcam on a reporter or a, a newscaster as our uh, actual reporter in this is, is pretty insistent that she's not a reporter. Uh, she's, she's not a colleague. Well, yeah. actually but he has her strung up with a countdown running and it's got a kind of Christmas with the Joker vibe, the tied up person. But eventually they realize, Oh, the reason he did this was so now the crowds are even bigger. So when he blows up a toy store, he's going to kill as many parents as he can. And he gets off two great lines as Maggie Sawyer bursts into the interrogation room where Lieutenant Probesman is in beating the hell out of him. Every clown loves kids. Just ask Sarah S. and Gordon. Oh, right. You can't. But then, even better. See, the thing is, the parents, they don't even care, you see? Because if they did, they'd have done their 
<laughs> shopping already. That is fucked up. That is up there with that bit from Batman the Audio Adventure, which is now, by the way, for everyone out there, for season one is available fully to listen on any podcatcher. Definitely on Stitcher, where I listen to my podcast the whole season. If you haven't listened, go and listen. But that is up there with The Antidote. Oh, oh, killing me. Uh, so, yeah, again, first, you have to stop listening to this. Watch Face in the Crowd. Then go listen to all of uh, Audio Adventures. And when you're done with that, you can come back and finish this episode. Every beat here is so well done this is again it's a crime it's the gcpd investigating this string of sniper shots you see the case you see everything they're doing to figure out what is going on you get not just the gcpd but as i said you get uh simon lipman who's a reporter who's doing a ride-along you see Stacy, who's a civilian contractor. You see cops with different angles. You see Aikens trying to navigate the politics of being the commissioner, which is something that Jim Gordon was never very good at. Jim, Jim bled blue. Jim was the guy who was there to do the right thing and he couldn't give a damn about politics. Always Aikens, do the right thing. Yeah. Akins is a politician. He's not a bad man. He's try, He tries to do the, the right thing. But if Gordon had been told to waste detectives to roust the killer clowns, Gordon would have more or less spit in Mayor Hall's face. But Gordon also had all those years of goodwill Akins doesn't have that goodwill. And we haven't even talked about the art. Michael Lark is just brilliant. He is one of my favorite artists in comics. There is grit on a Michael Lark page. It is street level art at its finest. And the snow, the the streets, the expressions on these characters' faces, the way he draws Joker. Joker looks like the character that inspired him from the film The Man Who Laughs, Conrad Veet, I believe. He, he's got that, the, the, the severe widow's peak and the gaunt face and the smile. Oh, the smirk that he gives Joker. The, the explosion, the look of the bodies as the gunshots hit them. This isn't superhero art. This is crime comics art. And it's just, it's just great. Like it, the, the colors too. When Joker basically explodes into violence, you get that bright, just dangerous red. There is... Not one thing I didn't like, I think, in this story. Yeah, you're right. Like dropping into the middle of the run. I'm like a little bit about who are these characters, but it's like just flipping on SVU, right? You you get the beats, you get the sense of what's happening. And I really felt for these characters in their their sense of 
almost feeling hopeless or helpless and and being those pawns between these you know joker and and batman and then finally thinking like we are going to do something we don't have to just sit here as these two uh larger than life characters fuck everything up in this city we can do this work we can bring him down even if we can't figure out why the hell he just turned himself in and that the final page pages as Akins and Maggie Sawyer talk about exactly that, that they're, they don't want to be these pawns. And why do they have to wait for Batman and Maggie saying it's not fair, but it's Gotham. And then you get flashes to the corpse of Lieutenant Probeson, who the Joker killed uh, Detective Patton in the hospital in a coma and the Joker just handcuffed to a bed and laughing these are the people who are caught in the crossfire. Gotham Central is one of my favorite comics. It is a great book that does incredible character work and gives you an angle on superheroes that you don't often see. I can understand completely if there are people out there who do not want to read a book with police as protagonists. I can understand that. This book came out at a time that that view of police's protagonists was much simpler for mostly ill. But reading this book as a book about characters, you get great stories. You get such great stories. I mean, do you have anything else? No, I think you summed it up well, and I can't wait to read more. I'm, I'm so excited to just get into this as soon as possible. Um, so that means it's time to solve targets on the big board. Way up top. Oh, boy. Number 20 is Batman the Cult. I like this more. I like the cult. The cult is big and crazy and wild. But the cult has that weird thing where it feels like there's an issue missing in between three and four. Where it's like, okay, Batman's leaving Gotham and he's never coming back. And Deacon Blackfire is one. And then issue four starts with Batman has decided to come back and Deacon Blackfire has now completely drunk his own Kool-Aid. We don't get that transition. All right. Uh, New Frontier at 14. More of a Batman story. This is more of a... I mean, despite Batman not being in it a ton... His presence weighs so heavily on this book. And when he shows up, it's important. And when Joker shows up, this is seminal Joker. This is a, if I wanted people to understand the way to read and write the Joker, it's this and five-way revenge I would give them, not killing Joe. All right, then. Five-way revenge at 10. Five-Way Revenge is more important. Five-Way Revenge is the story that gives us... We wouldn't have soft targets if we didn't have Five-Way Revenge. Because it's the one that turns the That's Joker a good point. back into a threat versus Cesar Romero. All right, so we've, we've found our limit, which is 10. Wow. Dark Victory at 11. Why did you ever start a Batman ranking podcast, Matt? Oh, because I am a fool who thought there would be it would be easy. <laughs> oh, um, I just oh. listen. 
the one thing I am happy to say is that we are in this area together because if you had been, you know, I really wasn't digging this and I'm putting this down around blades. I think we would have uh, been a fight. Uh, no, again, I, I want to, I want to call in sick to work tomorrow and just read more of this uh, and just, just like, urgh, just yeah. d- get uh, absorb it all. We, uh, we will do. I have a GCPD episode planned it'll be one arc of Gotham central and then two shorter stories from previous, from other stories, but the Montoya story half a life is definitely the Montoya story for the GCPD episode. Very good. Very good. That's, that's a banger too. All right. So dark victory is hurt only by the idea. It's a sequel. It's a follow-up. Yes. Is this really the new number 11? Does this fall right outside the top 10? So I, I think it's better than Mask because yes. this, is, this, is, this is meatier than Mask, even though Mask is clearly a great story. Yes. I did not dig Arkham Asylum as much as you did. So I'm willing to put not everything above it, but I would be willing to put a lot above it. I would actually put this above Arkham Asylum because that's Morrison's first major Batman story. And they don't have Batman's voice down just right. There's some moments in there that really struck my ear wrong for Batman's voice in that book. So So we're looking at 11 or 12. What what do you want to do? What do you want to do? I think it's 11. I it is Dark Victory better than Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, that's kind of the oh boy. I think it's eleven. All right. I I, I mean this like I I almost like I wish I could do like ten a. <laughs> uh, no pushes, Matt. No pushes. Nope. That's cheating. It is this this though. And, and, you know, everybody out there, you got to remember, I have to, you know, update the big board on the CXF website, which means I'm going to have to go in and shift the numbers on everything now from 11 on down. And that's after just two weeks ago, having to shift everything down from 15 with Garden of Earthly Delights. So this is going to take some time. But that's how good this story is that I am willing to put in the work. And now Batman the Cult falls out of the top 20. Number 20 is Detective Comics number 500 to kill a legend. Yeah. I mean, we're now probably at... You've got to be a great comic. Like a almost peerless, untouchable comic to break 30 at this point and yet there are still things that are gonna have to go in that top 20 somewhere tinian's the joker yes gotta be in there it's recency bias i know but uh it's so fucking good oh yeah no there we are gonna get some there's some plenty of classics that we have not gotten to yet that are gonna speaking of brubaker we have not done brubaker's Brubaker and Doug Monkey's The Man Who Laughs, his take on the first meeting between Batman and the Joker. Not sure if it's quite quite top 30, but it's high. This was a good night. 
surprising what you can do when you have a, a good writer and you pick good stories from a good writer. Next week, next week, let's see where we where we fall. Because next week our episode will be dropping the within the week of when DC is releasing its 20th anniversary edition of Hush. So we are going to be reading Hush as well as two other stories featuring the Riddler. And sneak peek, we're going to tie up a big narrative thread on this podcast uh, here in a couple of weeks. We're going to read the sequel to Batman and Superman versus vampires and werewolves, which uh, is not going to be in the top 20. (laughs) No, that the, the question there is, will we have something in the bottom five again? Probably not, not to prejudge a book, but uh, I I don't think Batman versus the Undead is gonna is gonna wind up uh, up there in that top ten. No, I, I I seriously seriously doubt it. But we will reach that point thanks to our Patreon backers. So let's thank Dan Gro, June Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June Come on, Josh Wheel. Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF, ComicsXF.com, or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>